Hello and welcome to Making the Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study first comprehensive exams. And we're up to episode 79, which uh, I kind of never imagined that I'd get to. And we're getting really, really close to the end. It's May the 1st. My exam is on May the 16th. Uh, it does not take a master's degree in history to know that that means that we got 15 days left, two weeks and a day. And I can't help feeling that strange sense of nostalgia and dread that I have right about when I make a really big move. You know when you are walking through the streets that you've known for a really long time and you say to yourself, oh my god, this daily routine of mine, that little corner store, uh, the dog that always barks on me, the kid who always looks at me like I'm crazy, that I see every single day, I'm only going to see them like five more days, and I'm the only one who knows. In five more days, I will be ripped out of this routine. And I feel like that now. I feel like I am just constantly nostalgic. I think I've started every single episode for maybe the past month um, doing a little countdown of how many days left I have. And at once, that's really scary. I'm, I'm really scared about the coming exam. I'm kind of anxious all the time. But it's also a little bit sad. I've genuinely learned a lot from this experience. And while I have been upset often, while I've probably ruined a couple friendships and uh, put a lot of strain on my other relationships, I can't say that I haven't liked this. This whole routine of jamming ideas into my head and talking about them on the podcast and wrestling with them and having this you know, four months of luxury to only think about the things that I find important has been really incredibly valuable. And that's something that I'm going to miss when the exam is over. Uh, after the exam is over, I just go back into the routine of academic production. I have to um, after a suitable holiday, of course, think about getting papers ready for publication. Um, I have to think about uh, planning the next part of my academic journey where I go off to archives in Britain and research an as-of-yet um, unsubmitted uh, dissertation. But so today, uh, we're going to be continuing the mini-series where I ask myself questions about the 18th century and then attempt to answer them. And this episode, I'm going to be dealing with my home turf, with civil society and the public sphere. And even though it's my home turf, even though it's the thing that I actually research, I found drafting this episode really hard. I felt like I had either said everything that I was going to say over and over again, and I also felt like I wasn't putting enough thought into it. Like I'm just gonna kind of bunt this one. That there is still a really important thing about this topic that I haven't really figured out. So I have two questions for myself. The first is this one. 40 years ago, you could do a course about British history without mentioning civil society at all. So this has kind of two parts to it. The first is, what do we miss out on if we don't include civil society? And the second part is, why are we talking about it now? The second question might be more straightforward. Civil society is often portrayed as an intellectual and a social development. What are the material factors behind it? 
So the first thing that we need to do is to define what civil society is and then to talk about why it's important. Civil society is this middle range of human activity between the state, the family, and sometimes business. It's a place where people interact without being constrained by larger organizations. Think social clubs, people bowling, the public sphere. Uh, it's this place where democracy happens. And why is it important? Well, a strong civil society is thought to be essential for a bunch of desirable modern things. Democracy, trust, capitalism, lack of civil war. The academic research about it rose in the 90s, mostly, due to a number of strains of thought. The first is modernization theorists, including some Marxists, who faced a huge challenge to their view that most of human history could be explained by economic factors. For Marxists and modernization theorists, uh, you know, once you get modernity, a bunch of things fall out from that. Once you get factories and capitalism and, you know, you get a certain kind of social development. But in the 90s, you had the collapse of the Soviet Union and then the rise of a bunch of new kinds of states in Eastern Europe, lots of whom were advised by Western social scientists who encouraged particular paths of liberalization that they believe through their study of history would, you know, create economic development and more importantly, political, social, and cultural development. However, this modernization of Eastern Europe did not really happen the way that people had predicted. And so these social theorists were left scrambling for a way to explain what went wrong. What was missing in Eastern Europe that was present in Western Europe? There's a lot of stuff that we've talked about that's come out of this perspective. Institutional economists, for instance, who point towards political institutions that uh, help control against rent-seeking is a response to this problem. And civil society is another response. It says, look, you don't just need factories and universities and a free market to get modernity. You need civil society. This kind of fascia between the muscles and the bones of the society that keeps it together, that allows people to mobilize critiques against government, that allows people to trust one another, that teaches people important civic virtues of not stealing from one another. The second trend is older than this. It is a European intellectual's critiques of a mass society. Um, in undergrad, you might have read things like Adorno, a people who uh, have titles of essays written like The Artwork in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. And these scholars were wrestling with how to deal with modern society when it seemed like the technology of capitalism made everything really, really big. Not only did you have mass culture, so instead of going off to the concert hall and listening in person to good uplifting music, instead you listened to a jazz record which was copied over and over again and played the same sort of thing to thousands of people in their homes. But it also presented really big problems for politics, problems that we have just simply taken for granted. Part of that is that politics seems to really hinge now on this mysterious thing called public opinion. We know that politicians chase after it. 
We represent public opinion as standing in for the will of the people. But where is it? How do we see it? How do we touch it? Well, we have pollsters who generate numbers about public opinion, but we all kind of have this idea that public opinion is out there, that there is some objective fact of belief of what the public, a group of people somehow talking and thinking together, thinks about the issues, a bunch of problems that we have about uh, the collective groups that we, we have. And they're interested in the history of how the public is formed. The key person here is, of course, Jürgen Habermas and his book, The Structural Transformation of the Public Sphere. In short, driven by the new kinds of information and trading networks uh, in the uh, uh, burgeoning capitalist economy, people create new kinds of social spaces where they're able to talk about new kinds of subjects while bracketing out um, their personal details. When they talk about these subjects in these new spaces like coffee houses, they are uh, ostensibly reasoning about them. They're ostensibly talking about them not as individuals, but as kind of representatives. So why am I interested in civil society? And here's one of these bits of this episode, just to, you know, part the curtain, where I think that I'm on shaky ground, where I really need to think more about what's at stake. So what do I think about civil society? Well, I think that it's important because it lets us see the rise of a different kind of uh, factor. And that factor is organizations. I think that civil society for me is a story not simply of politics. It's not simply a story of a secret missing sauce of modernity. It's not simply a story of clubs, but rather civil society is a way in that we can see the increasing power of a society that's becoming increasingly organized. Looked at this way, it uh, allows us to make stories about political activity that aren't teleological. So unlike the Whigs who say, look, you have liberty and that's the story of the 18th century, instead we can talk about a, a, a broader rise of organizations that allow people to do different kinds of things. And then people compete about what kinds of things they want to do and they compete through organizations. Um, similarly, it allows us to talk about uh, the um, connection between uh, economics, politics, and society without treating any particular factor as king. You know, uh, it, it avoids economic or political or social determinism by seeing all of these things being mediated by the organizations that people are actually in. And so instead of seeing, say, just the rise of liberalism or uh, the rise of the big supremacy or the confessional state, instead I see the 18th century as a story of the rise of a bunch of different kinds of organizations that are sometimes structurally similar and broadly speaking are pushed by similar kinds of structural factors. But however, they have very different kinds of ways of working. They are content agnostic, so they can do a bunch of different kinds of things. And they often compete about, you know, what actually the end goal of society should be. So the driving factors of this story for me, the structural factors that I mentioned are um, something that should feel very familiar to you. It is the story of the slow rebuilding of the world after uh, the climactic crises of the 17th century. It is the story of increasing population, increasing communication, increasing um, transportation networks, and increasing markets for trade. 
So before I jump into talking about that mechanical story, I just want to mention four areas in which we can see civil society really as growing. The first I'm going to call social, and this is probably the easiest. And if I was in the exam, I might mention this first just to get it off my chest, because the social rise in civil society is really the most striking. First, we have this story of the rise of coffee houses. Uh, they started first in 1652, but didn't really take off until the 1660s and the 1670s. They became incredibly popular and were novel social, social spaces in which new kinds of people got together to make new kinds of social organization. The important thing to note here is that the new kind of social space creates new kind of people in that space. You get a new kind of curious, uh, 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 public-focused, uh, mercantile, information-hungry, news-reading man in the coffee houses. Then the story, we can move on to the rise of the clubs, which is my research interests, which I can talk about for a really, really long time. But to put it into the perspective of this uh, episode of this answer to this question, clubs continued the organizational developments of civil society. Rather than having a venue-specific sort of organization that allowed people to create new social identities, instead you had a venue-agnostic organization that could be ported from place to place and could be copied without uh, necessarily getting new kinds of social institutions. I'll say that in a concrete way because it is important. The thing about the coffee house is that it did make new people, it did make new social spaces, but it was limited to the coffee house. Clubs, you could get a club wherever you wanted. All you needed was the certain set of rules, the operating system of a club. You needed to have rules, and you needed to have regular meetings, and you needed to have uh, uh, leaders, but that was it. And this allowed the social organization of clubs to be you know, portable from different people, different groups, different um, curiosities, different interests. We can see this um, in the political dimension most clearly. Uh, in politics after the uh, Seven Years' War, we have an increasing involvement of organizations, of formal organizations, in making political claims. Uh, the most obvious of these are often um, the most drastic, the, the ones that seem to be standing athwart the established status quo, uh, the Wilkesite uh, Reform Societies. Um, the Societies for Constitutional Information in the 1780s and 90s, which are uh, perceived by uh, the elites at the time as kind of pseudo-Jacobin revolutionary societies. But we also have to remember that these societies are broad-based. Um, for every single society of constitutional information that you have out there, you have a dozen loyalist societies, Protestant associations, these same sorts of organizational forms that are uh, advocating very loudly and in public for what we might think of as conservative ends. A great example of this is the uh, Church and King riots of the 1780s, because this shows how politics is becoming kind of like organizations fighting organizations. You have a particular man, Joseph Priestley, one of my few uh, intellectual heroes of the uh, uh, 18th century, one of the guys who I would just die uh, to have a drink with. I, I really like him. Um, I find a lot of personal affinity with him. 
Joseph Priestley was a dissenting minister who uh, grew increasingly interested in natural science and uh, philosophy and kind of basically became a pseudo-atheist, although I'm not going to say that in the exam because it's technically wrong and I would be beaten to death for it. He was a Unitarian, his, his religious things, views were, were complicated, but he had very heterodox opinions. And he came to these heterodox opinions in the spaces of association. He hung out with people like Erasmus Darwin and uh, James Watt and Bolton at uh, clubs that people organized in the Midlands, particularly the Lunar Society. This is where he cut his teeth on ideas. This is where he learned how to debate and argue. And it's interactions here which led him to publish a lot of his beliefs in the new kind of public sphere. This newsprint-aided network of opinions and, 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 and arguments. And once he dropped his ideas into the public sphere, it got people really, really angry. And as a result, you get a different kind of organizational formulation. You get a bunch of loyalist associations who get together and in, um, you know, very British manner, get controllably drunk and go out on a riot and burn down um, Priestley's house and basically send him into exile into America. Um, we can also tell the story of the increasing reach and power of organizations in the economic realm. Not only are there civil society organizations devoted to improvement, but a lot of business life is increasingly taking place not in um, the old context of guilds, but rather a new context of informal uh, partnership situations, which is an economic relationship, yes, but it's also a deeply personal relationship. It uses the same kinds of language and the same kinds of organizational forms as the club to do business across long distances. Finally, we can identify a bunch of cultural norms that uh, are deeply connected with the rise of civil society. These are things like norms of politeness, where people learn to talk with one another um, in ways that do not uh, lead to fights in diverse public settings. So all that being said, why does it happen? For me, I think that the expansion of markets uh, that happens through um, increased prosperity, increased population, and improvements in communication and trade lead to people having to do business with more strangers. It's the problem of trust. People, especially in cities, need new kinds of social formulations to hang out with strangers, to do business with strangers, to trust strangers, to make friends in a place filled with strangers, to make social life with people who they only have weak ties. And so you get a bunch of technologies that help people make these associations work. Um, on the business end, you have uh, the uh, position of the factor, uh, the person who handles trade for a partner, um, for an agent uh, uh, over long distances. You have partnerships. You have new ways of framing apprenticeship formulations. You also have just generally uh, a much bigger trade in information through newspapers and epistolary networks. You also have socially new kinds of social spaces like coffee houses, yes, but also places like assembly rooms and tea gardens and spa towns that allow people to mix freely because they are a little bit more exclusive. They're a filter on the public world and because they're a filter within them, people can interact more freely. And these public spaces are, of course, 
liminal. They're not central to the public. They're not in the central square. They are outside of it. They're on the edges. They are places that are marginal to your day-to-day -day life that allow you for brief moments to bracket some of the things that might stop you socializing with people in your day-to-day -day life. I go to the coffee house in the morning because there I can forget that I'm a merchant and you are a one-eyed itinerant painter and there I can talk to you about your ideas about the Glorious Revolution, for example. And also there is the um, expanse and popularization of rules of association. The actual technology of how to get people together in a room and make sure that they keep on coming back to that room and make sure that this group does not fall apart and agrees on decisions and then once it agrees on decisions is able to act on it. We take this for granted, but people at the time were really concerned about it. How do you make rules to make sure that your associations stick together? How do you make sure that your club does not descend into acrimony? How do you make sure that once you make a decision, people stick by it? How do you make sure that your club does not admit people who will make your club seem bad? And if we want to dig back into this, we can perhaps make the argument that these kinds of technologies come from Protestant sects that seek to take an account of the life of the Christian every single day. Things like keeping a moral account book, things like um, surveillance of members to make certain that they're actually being Christians. John Paget has shown that there is a transference of the organizational form of Catholic sects to uh, the stock market in um, the Netherlands, for instance. So there may be a kind of disciplinary uh, uh, transmission between um, marginal Protestant sects and much more prominent civil society organizations. As these technologies of dealing with weak ties become more popular, there's a feedback loop because it becomes easier to deal with distant people. And as it becomes easier to deal with distant people, then the market expands more. People deal with more and more strangers. And so people have to adopt increasingly new kinds of technologies that let them deal with strangers. Successful organizations that help people deal with long distance communication and trust, in turn, make long distance communication and trust easier. And through this, people learn new kinds of civil behavior, new ways of thinking about themselves as individuals uh, created by networks of organizations, not as individuals that have inherent being based on their social position. In short, modernity. This is modernity to me. This uh, overlapping networks of organizations is what makes people different. And it's really important to point out that there are people left out of this. If the uh, civil society is really, really important to the development of capitalism, if these social networks give people the social capital to make um, you know, new factories, to make working class uh, pseudo uh, labor organizations, to make new kinds of political claims, then it's really important to note that women were entirely shut out of these clubs. There were a few clubs, a few public civil society organizations that women were allowed to do, but for the most part, women were bracketed out as uh, people also bracketed out their social positions. And this meant that women faced in the 18th and 19th centuries a relative decline of their social capital as there was a massive explosion in men's social capital.
Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of Historian. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, please shoot them to me at my Twitter, at MackieTeacher, M-A-C-K-I-E-T-E-A-C-H-E-R. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, uh, tell all your friends, go out into the night and scream uh, the name of this podcast out into the empty sky. Uh, and even though the empty sky will not hear you, it will still uh, help the iTunes algorithm. I don't know how the iTunes algorithm works, but... That's how they say it. Um, thanks very much to Duncan Barton for the image and Jonathan Lear for the music. Um, I will be back to you guys tomorrow or tonight um, with more stuff about the 18th century. Bye.